0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our Master Cheesemaker Program is one of the only two in the world, so it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're talking about a little-known and largely forgotten fact of culinary history. And that is that in the 19th century, Americans consumed a lot of tea. And the tea they favored was green tea, mostly consumed hot with milk and sugar. Who knew? We thought this was our new, you know, elegant Chinese uh, or Japanese uh, venture with our sushi or before and after this green tea and now the health benefits of green tea. Well, little did we know Americans have been doing this for a long time. The teas that they, that they used were imported from China until Japan developed an export industry centered on the United States. My guest today, historian and author Robert Hellier, explores the forgotten American preference of green tea and traces the trans-Pacific tea trade from the 18th century forward in his new book, Green with Milk and Sugar. He shares his insights on how the interconnections between Japan and the United States have influenced the daily habits of people in both countries. Robert Hellyer is associate professor of history at Wake Forest University and no stranger to Japanese history. He is the author of Defining Engagement, Japan and Global Contexts from 1640 to 1868 and co-editor of the Meiji Restoration. Japan as a Global Nation in 2020. Robert, you've been very busy with uh, your books because you just came out with this book. Welcome.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Am I saying your name
2: correctly, Hellier? Yes. Yes. Thank you. All right. Great. All right. Um, So looking at your background, I see, as I said, that you're no stranger to uh, Japanese culture, Japanese history. Tell me a little bit about your personal connection with this particular topic, green tea, and how you came to write this book.
3: Uh, well, thank you again for inviting me to talk with you today. Uh, my personal connection particularly came through my grandmothers. Uh, I was fortunate I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, which is near Seattle, and I was able to spend a lot of time with my grandmothers, both that live, who lived quite near me. Uh, and my paternal grandmother, uh, she was grew up in a suburb of Chicago and moved to Tacoma, Uh, soon after she was married. But before that, uh, she had gone, actually as a newlywed, with my grandfather to Japan uh, because at the time, my grandfather was working in the family company, Hellier & Company, which was a tea export firm uh, Mm. based in the city of Shizuoka, which is near Mount Fuji. And this was a very formative time for my grandmother, and she had all kinds of of items she she brought back from Japan and many stories that she shared with me. And so that was one emphasis that that got me interested to learn more about the trade. But also, my maternal grandmother uh, was from a rural Illinois, uh, and she had particular sensibilities about the types of foods that she liked. For example, garlic and pizza was something she would not touch. Those were foreign foods. But she kept a stash of green tea, um, which I was not allowed to drink. Um, It was saved for guests. As a more sophisticated beverage, and uh, I was always intrigued. It stuck in my mind growing up. Why? Why did my grandmother like uh, green tea? Um, And so, to learn more about the stories of my my grandmothers, uh, I was one of the reasons and motivations for writing this book.
2: Mm, Interesting, Um, and obviously the the tea industry being in your background. I mean, that was that's um, pretty evident, and. You, I mean, you did exploration in that same time period in your uh, in your first book. Uh, what can you kind of back up and and give us a little background of tea consumption in Japan?
3: Uh, sure. Uh, tea consumption—you can see it really starting in uh, medieval Japan. Uh, the Heian period is often described as a as a wonderful time of of the flowering of court culture and things. This is from the late 8th century until the 12th century. Uh, mm-hmm. And during that time, and even a little bit before that, Japan uh, was embracing Chinese culture. Uh, China was the center of civilization. It was powerful. Uh, and Japanese wanted to do what the Chinese were doing. So one of the things involved with that was drinking tea. And this is talking about elites, the court. Who would drink tea, and as the Chinese would do, would uh, also compose poetry, and were overwhelmed by what tea would do to to the body and and the experiences you could have from it. Um, but as with the case of so many, the history of so many foods and, and beverages, that you start to see then a transition from the elite exotic product to a medicinal product, and that was a period also. Uh, in Japan where tea was discovered, if you will, uh, because of its medicinal value. Uh, There's a a story about a shogun who was the generalissimo, uh, who, to cure a hangover, uh, drank a cup of green tea and was overwhelmed by how much better he felt. Uh, And so this was one of the ways of which tea started to uh, begin to become more widely consumed in Japan. It was also then grown in, uh, in Japan, and so by Japan's last feudal age, the Edo period from 1600 to 1868, mm-hmm. uh, tea was was consumed uh, by all classes uh, on an everyday basis. So, the uh, the progression, the history of of tea in, in Japan, is something that we can trace and connect to the the history of Japan overall.
2: Right, and in that period, the Edo period, I'm so much of their you know their cultural habits w- were established during that period i mean it was that was a very important time yes at yes. least from a culinary standpoint you know I, I see that certainly yeah um well they i mean so the japanese were still they were basically um you mentioned in your book relying on chinese expertise with um helping them in their in their production and their uh and their growing of, of tea. Um, this went on for some time, did it not?
3: Uh, right, well, that's the the transition, the important part of, I mentioned a, a moment ago, the Meiji Restoration, which was when the Tokugawa, it, it was a military, a samurai government was overthrown, and uh, some the samurai who took control of government said that we need to change Japan, we need to adopt more of Western institutions, and particularly we need to switch Japan's economy to a path that hopefully you can move to industrialization, and one of the ideas that, and one of the the policies they adopted, was to promote uh, exports or goods that had not been exported um, before by Japan, uh, and notably, silk and tea and coal were the three biggest exports. Mm. So to develop the export trade, I mean, Japanese had been throughout the Edo period before cultivating tea. Uh, consuming it in the domestic market. But to develop an export trade, they they needed the the Chinese know-how. And that's where the really fundamental role of Chinese experts came in, uh, down to where that you would have the factory. Um, It was modeled, uh, excuse me, the refining factory where the tea was uh, placed in uh, pans to eliminate the moisture before it was exported. Mm -hmm. That process was based upon Chinese practices. And so the factories that were built in Japan to export tea were very much modeled on what was done in China, what had been done in China for uh, previous centuries.
2: Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about this American um, preference for the green tea. They didn't, Americans being, you know, uh, settled by the English, didn't start out liking green teas and drinking green tea mostly. It was black tea. It was, you know, I would imagine the tea of of colonized India um, uh, and China that they were drinking. So what happened? How did that come about?
3: Well, as you mentioned, uh, during colonial times, uh, Americans were drinking tea uh, much in the same way as, uh, as Britons. Um, and that was green and black tea. But after 1800, uh, a really interesting thing happened that Americans start to develop a preference for green tea. Um, and I never found sort of one trigger as to why this change took place. But I think one of the answers is that uh, the, the British and a lot of the tea exported from Canton uh, in southern China, which is the at that time the only port where Westerners could, could obtain tea. Uh, a lot of the contracts that the English East India Company had um, were for black tea. And so a lot of the black tea that was uh, from Canton was going to Britain. Therefore, what was left over was green tea. And American merchant ships that were going to Canton were loading cargoes of green tea, and they found that they could sell it in the United States for a higher prices. So when you have this develop, or the merchants realize that they're gonna take the green tea and, and get more from it, uh, they keep bringing more green tea. And it's very interesting, too, that green tea started to have an aura of sophistication after roughly 1800. Hmm. Uh, And I have a reference in my book about a newspaper article that I found from the Trenton Federalist in about 1803. And it was lambasting President Thomas Jefferson for his high ways of living, riding around in coaches and drinking green tea with sugar added in it. And while the rest of the Everyday Americans uh, were only had molasses or anything like that. So uh-huh. there's a there's sort of locked in after that the connection of a sophistication uh, of of green tea and the American experience, which I think continues uh, well into the 20th century.
2: Well, and then this this um, preference, as you mentioned in the title of your book, uh, with milk and sugar, that's rather surprising. Um, in black tea, of course, a little spot of milk or cream, um, a la British, uh, isn't surprising. But rarely do you see that, I guess, with the green teas. And that's, so that, that struck me, obviously. You too, because you use uh, it right. as a title. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, yes. It was an intriguing element. And I think to, to present what American tastes at the time throughout the 19th and 20th century and into today are very individual. Uh, American tea culture never developed something like, for example, chai, uh, which is developed in India from the 1960s, where mm-hmm. you, if you're ordering tea, it's understood that you're going to get it with milk and maybe some additives to it. But there was never that sort of uh, American way, prescribed American way of tea consumption that developed. So therefore, there was quite a variety and a lot of people adding uh, milk and sugar to green tea.
2: Mm, right. And and you mentioned, um, you know, the uh, criticisms of Jefferson and his so-called elite ways. Well, tea itself was looked upon as sort of that very elite, if not even effeminate kind of, of preferred drink, you know, with the little pinky sticking out and <laughs> sipping right. tea in the afternoon. Uh, and yet, from what you have... Um, uncovered and offered in your in your book here is that this this wave of drinking the green tea um, possibly hot with milk and sugar you know was a wave that took over in america and p- predominantly in or or largely in the midwest mm. yes okay talk about that one.
3: Uh, Oh sure yes. i i mean we have actually um, from the 1850s or so, there's a really interesting variations, uh, regional variations of tea consumption that uh, uh, green tea still dominates, but Americans are also starting to drink oolong tea from uh, Taiwan, mm-hmm. and oolong particularly became popular in New England. Um, and so we get into the 1870s and 1880s. This, is, of course, is a time of incredible economic surge in the Midwest. I mean, the the cities that are sprouting from the prairie uh, Chicago being the most important but also other cities throughout the Midwest and so what what I've concluded with this is at this time that midwesterners want to be inheritors of what is the sophisticated American tea culture which is green tea uh, and so green tea continues to really have a niche in the Midwest that continues really until the till the 1930s
2: hmm Interesting. Well, this, this um, new uh, interest in green tea and, and teas and, and more tea in general uh, really had quite an effect on the Japanese agriculture, agricultural production and and the growing of tea. What what were some of those effects? Can you talk about that What what the trade did for them?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the Meiji Restoration in a, a period of, of important transition. And many parts of Japan, uh, some that had been growing tea uh, f- for, for centuries, others that tea had not been a, 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 an important product, mobilized to plant more tea and ship it to these ports, uh, Yokohama or Nagasaki being the most important one, that'd be exported to the U.S., Tea was then seen as a way to revitalize, revitalize in many cases, these different regions. And so we see a tremendous increase in the amount of tea grown in Japan. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, tea had been grown for centuries, but never to the level that we see developing in the late 19th and, and continuing into the 20th century. So the fact that there's so much more tea grown uh, in Japan today uh, is, is a legacy in many ways of this American demand from the 19th century.
2: Hmm. And weren't some, uh, well, of course, I guess maybe that was later on, you talk about the St. Louis uh, um, connection or whatever, that that some tea was, uh, some farmers began to grow tea plant, had small tea plantations in the U.S.?
3: Oh, in, in the U.S.? Yes, there mm-hmm. was an attempt uh, in the 19th century, there was a, Actually, a government agency right before the Civil War was hoping to uh, begin tea cultivation in parts of the U.S. that never took off, of course, because of the Civil War. Um, But after that, there were uh, pockets of production, most prominently in in South Carolina, in Pinehurst. Uh, But these were never that viable um, because there was so much tea being grown in other parts of the world, in Asia, uh, and this tea could be imported at a very low price and it was of of good quality. So therefore the American industry never really took off. Um, There were attempts to do it in the 19th century and there's still um, a plantation um, near Charleston, for example. Hmm.
2: So Pinehurst, they probably just turned those tea plantations into the golf course. Yes. yes, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Well, this is, we're going to, this is very interesting. And and I, and I, um, I have some, some other curiosities that I want to get to. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? Otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin. And the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. Our master cheesemaker program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Robert Hellier about America's love of green tea, and then st in general, as it turns out. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. You mentioned Robert um, how tea kind of people were drinking this green tea when this could have been the Japanese, this could have been you know the Chinese, but and also the Americans. I, I did read that in in your book too that that they liked the feeling they were getting from it and their clear heads. You talked about perhaps, you know, as a <laughs> cure for a hangover, but mm-hmm. um, not unlike today's kind of wave or movement with the coffee houses for a lot of young people who decided to perhaps abstain from alcoholic beverages for a while and they focus on coffee. I mean, it just seems to, everything kind of goes in waves. Sure, right?
3: sure. Yeah.
2: Um, one thing that I have had a question, uh, that you mentioned earlier, and that was the, um, you know, production, if you will, or, or the methods for getting the tea ready for market. And that is that, um, it's, you know, dried out or you, you had mentioned something in, um, that I read that it was fired, fired tea. Um, what can you talk about what, so that this is basically, you know, about the tea and
3: its preparation, particularly. Sure. Uh, yes, uh, you're referring to the period before mechanization really took off for the tea industry in Japan in the early 20th century, but before that, and w- when the first exports are going to the United States, for example, from the 1860s and 1870s, uh, the process for refining the tea was based upon Chinese practices. Uh, and the most prominent of these was to have a factory that had rows of pans and underneath it were fires that were kept going. And in the pans would be placed tea uh, that had been quickly uh, steamed after it was picked to stop the oxidization process. But it needed to be put under more intense heat to remove all the moisture. Otherwise, when it was packed in a chest and put on for a fairly long journey to the United States, the chest would be open and be moldy. So this process Mm -hmm. of, we have and have images in the book, for example, of these factories of which the workers were predominantly women, uh, who would be working in these pans. It would have been very difficult work, hard work, um, particularly in the summer, you know, over 100 degrees, uh, but stirring the tea for upwards of 30 to 40 minutes to remove the moisture from it. Uh, And then it would be packed either into small packets or into large tea chests and sent to the United States. But there were the pan-fired methods and also another method uh, where there was uh, charcoal underneath, but it was a basket that was used uh, to fire the tea. And I mentioned these because Americans chose their green tea, their Japanese green tea, based upon whether it was either pan or basket-fired. Uh, people, uh, a, Japanese, a group of Japanese uh, tea merchants who went to survey the American market in the 1890s, uh, intriguingly, would we'll talk about so. For example, people in Omaha, Nebraska liked pan-fired tea, but people in uh, in Minnesota preferred the basket-fired tea. So, it's really interesting the way that uh, Americans had particular tastes in in their types of green tea they consumed.
2: Huh, interesting. That's that's very interesting. Um, is there one type in Japan, let's say, that's considered more authentic than another?
3: Um, Well, I I don't know about authentic, but there was, uh, and one of the things that I do talk about in my book, is that when Japan started to export tea, uh, you had a type of green tea sencha, which is the most prominent and popular and well-known green tea from Japan today, that was consumed in cities, uh, but by and large, people in rural areas would consume a different type of green tea called bancha, uh, and bancha is picked. Uh, most sencha is picked in in April or May when you have the fresh buds, and the that's that's the the best tea, the best quality tea. But bancha is picked uh, throughout the year, and it includes you know older, coarser leaves and, and stems as well. Uh, and most Japanese at this time, who we are living in rural areas, would grow their own tea and and create their own bancha and have it at home. And so this was one of the ways of which Japanese were uh, drinking a green tea, but actually what's intriguing about bancha is that when it's brewed, it is brown. Um, And so one of the points that I wanna make about the book is we have roughly in 1850, uh, tea in Japan was a brown tea for most people. But in the United States, Americans wanted it green to the Mm. point that Japanese and Chinese would add coloring agents, notably Prussian blue, which is, as the name implies, it was created in Prussia in the 18th century to uh, dye Prussian military uniforms. This was added first in Canton in the late 18th century to tea to make it green. And Americans knew that it was colored, uh, would purchase it uh, because they wanted to see a green tea at the market. Uh, This is one of the intriguing things that I found too, that people, or American consumers in a lot of cases, would be choosing their tea not so much maybe on the the flavor, but how it looked at the market was a big determining factor.
2: (laughs) Not surprising considering people, you know, have a hard time with maybe organic fruits and vegetables that are a little ugly right. and <laughs> as opposed to those that are grown in, uh, you know, controlled environments. Right. <laughs> and that's interesting. Uh, but the Brown. Yeah. When you figure if they're drying it, it in order for shipping, it would turn a little Brown. Right? Yes.
3: Yes. It was, uh, the descriptions it would be a uh, white or gray. Um, and I, I found a, a couple references to people who would see the, Uncolored tea versus a colored tea, and say, "Oh, the colored tea is the one I want." Um, So, uh, this was uh, certainly uh, an important part of tea consumption in the late nineteenth and into some parts of the twentieth century.
2: Hmm. Well, I mean, tea. Okay, so tea was um, not that popular. I would imagine. I mean, I'm I'm sure, popular, but. Where did Americans, let's say I'm going to the grocery store for my goods or not, well, they didn't, we didn't have grocery stores until the uh, <clears throat> early 20th century But I'm uh, going to the market, going mm-hmm. to the markets. Where, where did one purchase their teas?
3: Well, I would say in the, in the early 19th century that you would go to, I, I guess would be your, your grocer. Right And maybe I'd explain, I think, the, the process that continued throughout the 19th century that you would go to whoever's this grocer or salesperson and just ask for a certain amount of tea that would mm-hmm. be put into a package. Um, and as the 19th century developed, particularly the the tea exporters and the importers would make packages. Uh, that would have the name of that small grocer. So the small grocer in somewhere in uh, Minnesota, uh, his grocer would have his own brand name of, of tea that he would be selling. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, as I understand it, that you would go, as I said, and, and ask for that certain amount, and that would be put into the bag. So that was a, probably the most prominent way. But from 1860, you have uh, the AMP, the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, right. very famous. Right. This starts to innovate um, by selling a lot more through mail orders. Uh, and they find it very lucrative. And the AMP is very good about uh, presenting their teas as being directly imported. Uh, actually, they probably weren't. They were going through wholesalers. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, people liked this new system and also encouraged to. Uh, get together in a club and buy tea together um, for uh, a savings, a discount on that. So that was another addition from the 1860s and 1870s. And then, toward the end of the 19th century, you had a lot more of the uh, companies that were delivering tea uh, as a the wagon delivery that would go a uh, circuit, you know, once a week, that would come by with. Uh, various items, but uh, one that I profiled in my book was Jewel Tea Company, mm-hmm. uh, which was had these wagons that would go around parts of the Midwest, and they had their own brands of tea, of a Japanese green tea or a different Chinese tea that they would, their house brands, that they would sell as well. So those mm-hmm. were some of the ways that that Americans were getting their teas. Uh, yeah, and I
2: when I saw that, I wondered if I mean, there's a very popular um, chain of grocery stores throughout the Midwest called Jewel, uh, the Jewel grocery stores.
3: Jewel Osco, yes, yeah. they originate from Jewel Tea Company.
2: Yeah, that's what so. I okay. That was my question. I wondered about that. Of course, yes. we know the story of A.M.P. as as well. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So look at it, it was a it was a, a springboard and a birth of you know larger business, for sure. Uh, let's talk about um, some of these cultural and social trends that um, kind of were shared or differed from the Japanese society to the American. I mean, it, we in the Japanese society greatly influenced the U.S. as to, well, what we were drinking. What about mm-hmm. some other trends? And going backwards the other way, is there some anything that you can, um, pinpoint that, that stands out.
3: Oh, you mean trends in, in Japanese versus American consumption or? Yeah,
2: I guess that would be it. Yes. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay. Well, one thing that, uh. Or how we
2: affected their, their, them or them us. Oh,
3: sure. Well, um, as I mentioned in, in the case of Japan, that going back in around 1850, that people were consuming the bancha. Uh, and this was the tea that was grown at home, if you will, but in around 1920, uh, we see that Americans start to turn towards black tea, uh, and this to me, is a combination of the negative, oftenly racially charged advertising that was used by Indian Ceylon producers, a slightly lower price, um, and then also much more uh, wider advertising by these large firms that it's It's pretty clear that Americans in the early 1920s are turning to black teas now for the japanese producers this caused a real problem not only they've lost this lucrative export market but right before that during world war 1 japan had had record amounts of production of tea so what will you do with the tea we see in the 1920s for really the first time the japan tea association and other groups focusing on the japanese domestic market and wanting to sell sencha this type of green tea that it had been exported uh, predominantly to the United States. And to me, this is where one of the hope, the takeaways from the book is how much the 1920s and 1930s are turning points for tea in the United States and Japan,
1: hmm. because
3: we start to see Sencha becoming a more dominant uh, type of tea in Japan. And that trend continues to this day as is the case with black tea consumption being dominant in the United States today.
2: Right, right. Um, and our, um, of course, then a lot of, you know, political problems ensued and the uh, First World War, Second World War, Second World War particularly. Um, I'm sure that shot down Japanese uh, tea drinking for us and, and our markets changed, correct?
3: Uh, yes, that was... Uh... It was starting to decline, as the, the points that I made just a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the outbreak of war in, in 1941 uh, ended the export trade, and it never recovered in uh, the post-war period. There were uh, hopeful signs that maybe Americans would want to drink green tea again, but it it, it never recovered. And Japan started to export. Uh, it wasn't on the same level as the exports to the U.S. in the early 19th and early 20th, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, but uh, export was significant to North Africa um, at that time, areas, uh, for example, Algeria, that was then under uh, French occupation. But in the case of Japan, most of the tea that was produced was being sold and consumed within Japan.
2: Right, interesting. Well, you um, it, back to your great, was it your great, great grandfather who uh, was in the tea industry?
3: Yes. Okay,
2: so how and tell us a little bit more about how that came about. What you know is at least as much as you know. I mean, that was interesting to to get into that um, business from coming from the Midwest, or he was he came from Midwest, or he came from uh, Washington, the West.
3: No, he came from Britain actually. So, oh, the, oh that's right. The, he
2: was the, English, the English side of the yes, thing. <laughs> yes. The first
3: of a, yes, the first of my uh, going back roughly five generations. Uh, my uncle. Uh, his name was William Alt. Uh, He left Britain when he was 14. He became uh, working on a ship that was trading throughout the world. And he arrived, he was on the ship for about five years. And he ended up taking an offer to work as a merchant in Shanghai. He did that for a bit. And then he heard about the opportunities in Japan that was in, from 1859, Japan adopted under Western pressure, the Treaty Port regime, which had been established in China uh, after the Opium War. And so a place like Nagasaki was going to have uh, the opportunity for Western traders to be there and trade in a way that they couldn't do during the Edo period. So uh, William Ault went to to Nagasaki and started trading in anything he could, he could be involved with. He <laughs> would uh, get ships, for example, and sell them to Japanese lords. Um, But he also started uh, to export tea. And he, like other merchants, saw that the American market was a a perfect place for Japanese green tea to be exported. Uh, And so he continued in the company. He was very driven um, and he was able to have a dream, which I think many of us have, that he retired at, at 32 And returned to Britain and also bought a villa on the Italian coast. So he did very well for himself. And he turned the company over to my great-great-grandfather, Frederick Hellyer, who then took over the company and renamed it Hellyer & Company. And Frederick had also been born in Britain, um, but spent a lot of time in Japan. And then decided, uh, because of the importance of the Midwest and that market for his company and its tea exports to move to Chicago in 1888, and so that's why on my father's side, my family became Americans. It was because of the exports of Japanese green tea.
2: Huh, interesting, interesting story. Everyone has an interesting story, that <laughs> Yes. that is particularly yes. interesting. Which <laughs> came first, your interest in um, uh, history and the global? Global trading and and development of of Japan or because of your family history. Well, or the family that's history' personal, I don't know. <laughs> yeah no that's
3: fine. the the family history came first because I mentioned as a boy that uh, I, I had both the exposure in, in a sense of the export side of this story from from my grandmother uh, and that side of the fam uh, my paternal grandmother. Um, but then my maternal grandmother also—I uh, realized that it was the the wonderful story of the consumption side of the fact that here was somebody living in rural Illinois who was uh, embracing and, and enjoying uh, green tea. So that that's really was got me a, a sense of why I wanted to do this project. But then also as a historian, uh, seeing all the really interesting global angles. Uh, and perspectives that can be brought into this. Uh, for example, one that we talked about earlier, uh, the fact of how Chinese experts played such a big role in allowing Japan to export tea to the U.S.
2: Right. I mean, it, you're just it just you know maps out so many different influences and developments over the time, which is what I love about um, looking at you know history through through the lens of one particular item, and for me, a culinary item, you know, or, or food or or uh, you know, dining habit, and this mm. certainly does that. It certainly tells a tale, a very interesting tale. And I thank you for for focusing on this, but <laughs> focusing on the the green tea with milk and sugar, and that green with milk and sugar. Who knew? I mean, you know <laughs> that now when we you know request our special green teas and our, of course, the matcha, you know, ceremonies and and you know, fancy drinks, um, and it just it's it's. a whole new perspective on it when I, when I think of it, I thank you. Um, Well, thank you. I I appreciate
3: the opportunity to talk about it.
2: And good luck with this book. I think it's, it's a fascinating book that I think people, you know, it's what is wonderful is your, I mean, you have terrific footnotes and and a great index and and bibliography. Um, But the story is very readable. It's just, it's also just a story. So, you know, for those who want to just have an interesting story on, you know, how a, a particular product influences our world. That's that certainly does it. And,
3: well, thank you. I'm, I'm heartened to hear that because that's what I hope to have as an academic. Uh, you know, giving the footnotes and things like that, but also hopefully that a story that uh, those who might not be as inclined to pick up an, a, a book written by an academic uh, right. might pick this one up. So, so well,
2: thank you. hey, listen. The choice of the, whoever did the choice of the cover was it was <laughs> that was a surefire winner. And the, again, um, for my listeners, the book is called Green. With milk and sugar, when Japan Filled Americans Teacups. And again, my guest and author, it's Robert Hellier, and the publisher is Columbia University Press. And yes, it is interesting. And I encourage people to take a look. And thank you again for joining
3: me. Thank you very much.
2: And thank you for listening. Once again, this has been A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palacio on Heritage Radio Network. And If you're listening through Heritage Radio Network, um, you can listen to this anywhere you get your your podcasts. But if you go to our website, heritageradionetwork.org, you'll see a beating heart in the upper right hand corner. And in order to keep our voices on the air, you might consider giving a little love to the Heritage Radio Network website. We are a network of about 35 to 40 food shows that are interesting from all aspects of food and, as you heard, history. So tune in again. Thank you. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.